You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What'd You Miss This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This new podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal on Bloomberg Television. It's called What'd You Miss? And our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those that you may have just missed. It is the perfect way to kick off your weekend. So this week, we talked with Rhett Wallace. He is CEO of Triton Research about Elon Musk trolling Tesla short sellers and roiling markets with a Twitter tease to take Tesla private. Rhett explained how Tesla has grown 100 times in the public market since it listed six years ago. This is as big as all the IPOs, all the tech IPOs in the U.S. market so far this year, all in one. So $82 billion of new market cap created with technology companies going public, and this one would be 70-odd billion dollars going away out of the public market. So it undoes 23 deals worth of IPOs. (laughs) But that's what happens when you grow like Tesla has grown. I mean, the statistics are actually sort of shocking. Tesla went public on 100-ish million dollars of revenue and has grown 100x Hmm. in the public market since it went public six years ago. Its valuation has grown 50x in the public market. So it's been a good public market trade for people that got in early. It's the argument for buying tech IPOs. This one performed well. So that's a great uh, comparison there of size and scope on on what Tesla would look like if if you took it out of the public markets. What was your reaction when you heard about Elon Musk's tweet that he's considering taking private, the funding is secured? I mean, what would this look like? Well, so one of the things that we think is interesting, just as geeky students of markets like this, is there are a lot of good reasons to go public. Like people used to go public because it makes you rich, right? So that's pretty good, (laughs) right? You take your public stock and all of a sudden you you sell it. It's like, hey, right, I can buy a house. But so Elon Musk doesn't seem to mind most of the things about being public, like trading every day, filing your financials, having to disclose things to the whole world at the same time, having a real board of directors, all that sorts of stuff. What he does mind is being sold short. He doesn't like it when people bet against him. And so what's interesting to us is that going private seems to be actually pretty complicated relative to what he'd like to accomplish, which Hmm. is just to make it so that people can't bet against him because he doesn't like that. Yeah, it sort of makes you wonder why now. I mean, you had a, you could have gone private when the stock was under 200 a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. You could have gone when the stock was, you know, under 250 just earlier this year. You know, why wait till you get to such a high valuation than to try to take this company back private? I mean, that's a really good question. But, you know, you have to remember who you're talking about here. Like, why, why do anything, right? Why, why sell flamethrowers, right? So... I think that one of the things, if you take a bit of his word that he thinks that they've just now become a real car company, 
and that they you know, were at risk of actually failing. He said that they bet the company on the Model 3. Well, he, now he's won that bet. Going private when that bet was in doubt would have been possibly a reckless thing. If he's won that bet, now the company is worth having. He'd rather have it in the private market than in the public market. But again, depending on how they do this structurally, because he seems to be happy to have small retail investors, for example, he wants to take those people with him as opposed to making them right. sell their stock. So again, he just doesn't want people to short him. Right. So it'll be interesting to see if he's able to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, given all the complexity associated with a go private while you take your retail investors with you. Let me ask you a really dumb question. Is there a way for him to discourage or avoid being shorted as a publicly traded company? I don't know in the sense that I mean, that, that's on my list of things to look into, which mm-hmm. is if you could just make your stock not borrowable and therefore not shortable then his problem maybe would Might be, be solved. solved. Well, right. or you make the stock price high enough that it's too painful for well, the short, existing this, shorts. Right, right. but isn't this the narrative what he's trying to do? Like he, you know, on Twitter is railing against the shorts, t- calling for the short squeeze any minute now. He's trying to get the shorts out of the stock however he can, and he seems to not be able to do that by job owning it. Yeah, yesterday was a good example of that. Yeah, but and I feel like, too, with Musk, I mean, fairness to him, his sentiment is actually shared by a lot of CEOs. They're not maybe as emphatic about it, <laughs> but they certainly share it. And you've seen that with a lot of, they would go back to IPOs, that some of the folks that have IPO, they've structured sort of the, the share ownership in a way oh. where they retain a certain, we saw that famously with Facebook and oh, uh, even with Snap. App, to right. a certain extent. How about no votes for you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so I mean, what's the incentive for companies to go public if you know they want to end up like Elon Musk, or do they want to take maybe the Facebook route? That's why Facebook, uh, SpaceX is still private. He says he mm-hmm. won't take SpaceX. But That'd also, be a great company, Facebook. Yeah. That's Facebook, <laughs> right? I know that we should make that company and take it public while this window is still open. But we've talked here about the IPO window being wide open now for tech companies, and we've seen that with 23, 24 tech companies going public so far. But you know, a company like Sonos going public with a billion dollars of revenue—that's like a very late-stage company relative to what right. we used to see with mm-hmm. companies going public. And I think this gets to your point: companies don't really want to go until it's time to go and you need to create liquidity for your shareholders. When you look at the IPOs that we have seen recently, um, both the stage that they're at, but also the willingness to buy them right in Mm -hmm. the public market, does that inform the discussion about Tesla at all? In other words, how much cash is sloshing around that big funds like a SoftBank, for example, Mm want to put to work? And do they have a preference do they have a preference for public or private markets? Well, we've joked here that no one has a preference at all for public companies, good or bad, or IPOs, good or bad, in the sense that they all seem to be welcomed into the public market. So even recently, when we saw Sonos and Arlo kind of limp into the public market, cutting their prices a little bit, and so and Kango making it a little bit smaller, so you can kind of crawl through the IPO window now, <laughs> but you'll still be welcomed by investors. So that's what's so interesting, is investors have bought $80 billion worth of public market cap from the you know, tech IPOs, and then they could be selling that in the Tesla trade, mm. right? Increasingly, the investors are all the same. Musk even says this, that he has a Fidelity special purpose vehicle for his people in Tesla, or in SpaceX, rather. In SpaceX, yeah. Right. And so, like, Fidelity, public, right? But private, kind of. Mm. You know, SoftBank, publicly traded company, but a private equity fund, right? So I think the lines are blurring here, mostly because of what you said, that companies get big now before they go public. So late-stage companies are owned by kind of the same class of investors, whether they're public or private. Yeah. How do you see this playing out? The Tesla, Tesla thing? Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, 
you could sell tickets to this. It's going to be great. <laughs> right? Very, very interesting. I mean, for people that are, again, geeky students of markets about why companies go public or not, this puts all of those issues, I think, in a very highlighted way. And so it'll be fun to watch to see what all happens. Right. And, and the ticker for Spacebook, what should it be? Spacebook. I don't know. Let's, let's have a poll. We'll, we'll announce it next time. Then Mitch Lowe, the CEO of MoviePass, came on to defend his company's business plan. The too-good-to-be-true movie theater subscription pass has been bleeding money. But Mitch told us their new offer, which is three movies a month for $10, can make the company profitable within a year. Mitch pointed out an unusual challenge, getting customers to use the service less. You know, over the last year and three million subscribers, more than three million, not more than two, Mm -hmm. uh, we've been able to watch the segmentation of our subscribers by the amount of movies they go to. 15% of our subscribers cost us 40% of our cost of goods. By capping it at three, not only do we give an, I mean, if if we had come out and said, we're going to give you $45 worth of movies for $9.95, you'd be saying, what a great deal. The only difference today is it's going from a movie a day to three. 85% of our subscribers see less than three a month. And the average is coming down close to one a month, which, get, which is why this business model is sustainable. It gets us very quickly to one movie a month. The average cost in the United States is $10 a movie. We bring in 10, and then we make our money through advertising, studio partnerships, uh, this concept called a night at the movies where we, we generate income from, you know, you're going to dinner, you need babysitting, et cetera. Um, in addition to sort of the, the questions about the sustainability, mm-hmm. there's the service itself, right? We, um, in talking, people love talking about this company, I have to say, when we yeah. bring it up. Yeah. And two of our producers actually had been members both of them had canceled the service for mm-hmm. different me- uh, reasons. One mm-hmm. of them said every time she tried to use the card at the movie theater, it wouldn't work. It's mm-hmm. not a service where you can call up someone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to digitally right. um, uh, contact them. So she would end up just paying for the movie anyway yeah. um, instead of being able to use her pass. Yeah. Um, are you guys fixing some of these technical issues? Yeah, you know, uh, believe me, the, there's nothing I hate worse than hearing those stories. Meanwhile, we're buying 6% of all the movie tickets in the United States. We are half the size of Cinemark without owning real estate, and and we've grown 15,000% in 10 months. And so you can can imagine the challenges. How many cancellations are you guys getting from these kinds of issues? It is so small. We are still well over 3 million subscribers. So yes, we have have people who are canceling. Uh, We have an imperfect system, but we're delivering an amazing value to subscribers every day. Yes, some is not perfect. Why not just go to AMC, go to Cinemark mm. or Cineworld, which is now c- coming into the U.S.? Yeah. You know, what's the advantage over going to MoviePass? From a customer perspective, you were sort of the only game in town for a while. Right. But now with all of these issues... The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. 
that you're working through, mm-hmm. you're now in an environment where you've got four or five significant competitors. Yeah, the, there, there's really two significant differences. One is with MoviePass, you can go to four times as many theaters as the AMC program, which is the largest out there. Second is our target is the occasional moviegoer who is only going four or five times a year. That's the group we're trying to focus on. And you know, if there's any mistake we made over the last year, it's trying to serve all movie pass, all movie customers. So we're half the price of AMC. That appeals to the occasional moviegoer who's going from spending forty dollars a year uh, to spending one hundred and twenty. What's your confidence that this latest change is a change that is going to set the plan in place, that you're not going to make further tweaks? Because I know you were trying to do other things in the past as well, raising Mm -hmm. the price by 50 percent to Mm $14.95, surge pricing. You ended up abandoning both. How are subscribers, uh, how do you uh, assuage subscribers who Mm -hmm. think it's just a matter of time before you restrict my services (laughs) even more? Right. Yeah. You know, only time will tell. Uh, I could tell you all day long that uh, this is the last change. This change is built upon a huge amount of data. There's no other uh, movie theater subscription service with this amount of data. And so we are very confident that this is the last big change. So you said you guys are at 3 million subscribers. Um, The lead investor, Ted Farnsworth, has said it'll be profitable at 5 million subscribers. Mm -hmm. What's what's the pathway to profit here? Well, the pathway is to get to uh, roughly one movie a month per subscriber and then generate millions of dollars in advertising revenue. Uh, uh, partnerships with brands and so and that's what we're on a very you know in May we reported our average usage was 1.7 movies per month at roughly $10 so we were losing about $7 per subscriber so you going back to what you said earlier 15 percent of your subscribers are those who watch more than three movies a month the super consumers right, four or greater yeah. okay is the goal to get that down to somewhere in like 10 percent or five percent of your base well remember well, now, now can't. we've capped it so now the most you can go to is three no no but to get those kinds of subscribers as a whole as a percentage mm-hmm. of your whole to a lower percentage maybe make them not angry enough but give them something they can't uh, abide by and they'll leave the service on their own. Yeah, the path the path that we were following, which was taking a long time, would get a higher and higher percentage of occasional moviegoers ah, okay. over time. And ultimately we would have gotten there, but it, t- it was taking a long time. Uh, but I'm a little confused here, Mitch. So you, you have a product that's popular, mm-hmm. but in order to make it profitable, you want people to use it less. So the thing that's made it popular can't necessarily sustain the business. So what are the other revenue opportunities mm-hmm. beyond just the yeah. subscription? Well, price? just to give you a few examples, Fandango earns $1 in studio paid advertising for every single ticket it sells. You know, we sell over 5 million tickets a, a month. Mm-hmm. There's a there's dollar right there. We have advertising agreements with studios where we're able, well, we're buying 6% of the movie tickets generally. When we promote a title, we're buying 25%. That incremental lift is worth millions of dollars to studios, and they're paying us to promote their titles. So you also get a dollar for every movie ticket 
for every movie that your customers see? We're not there yet, uh, but okay. that's that's we we think that's uh, entirely feasible because Fandango does exactly speaks to the same audience as we do. In addition, we have all kinds of partnerships where people want access to our subscriber base by promoting their products. So we believe we can generate roughly $4 to $6 per subscriber per month in all these other ancillary And have you already sold the, the lists? We don't sell the lists. Or uh, give access. What, we do, what we're doing is, we, and you'll see if, if you're a subscriber, you'll see that you've gotten promotions. If you're a college-age student, we've offered uh, a low, you know, refinancing of your loans and various things like that. Now, in the background, while you're trying to run the business, there's the stock of the parent yes. company, right, mm-hmm, which right. has collapsed, really. Uh-huh. Um, you've been delisted from the NASDAQ once, or I should say the parent company stock has been de- delisted. What's the effect if it does get delisted again with the continuing tumble in the shares? Yeah, you know, uh, I focus uh, solely on the business, and, and I'm trying to create a valuable business. Uh, I'm not a director or officer of the parent. I mean, aren't uh, the there parent. funding implications, though? Yeah, yeah. The uh, You know, we have uh, relied on... on on growing the company by funding through Helios and Matheson. The, the big decrease in the burn will give, inve- if, over the next month, as investors start to see that the burn is coming down 60% already and continuing to decline. Meanwhile, you know, just yesterday, in one day, 15% of our monthly subscribers in the one movie a month all converted to the new three plan. Mm. And so we expect a majority of our subscribers of our three million to convert. And when people start to see that the business model is now getting to break even and the need for capital dramatically less, I think I think that value will come back. How close to break even are you? We'll be we'll be there within a year. Within a year. Okay, well, remember that. In the meantime, if I look on social media, on Reddit or on Twitter, there's a lot of commentary about perhaps um, a class action lawsuit against mm. MoviePass because of all the changes and everything. Mm-hmm. Are you concerned about that? Yeah, of course. You know, I've, I've seen all those and, and uh, you know, all I can do is, is keep trying to deliver a great product. Any, any talk of partnerships with, say, maybe the movie theaters or even the studios directly? Yeah, well, we're already getting paid millions of dollars by the studios to promote their films. Uh, we're all, we have t- over 2,000 screens are partnering with us where uh, we get discounts on tickets and we're integrated into their point of sale. And that's growing. And finally, we chatted with Srinivas Thiravadantai. He is research director of the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center about why the Indian rupee could become a hard currency. Srinivas predicted that India could be a $10 trillion middle-income economy by the year 2030. You know, at the end of the day, most of the currencies that are what we call hard currency, yeah. whether it's our, apart from, of course, the U.S. dollar, the U.K. pound, the Japanese yen, and euro, these are all developed countries. But what are the characteristics of developed countries? The characteristics of developed countries are they have deep financial markets and a lot of financial products. Because at the end of the day, most central banks or anybody holding foreign currency, there are investors who hold real estate, of course, but mostly they hold financial assets. Central banks are holding treasury bonds or treasury bills. Uh, or at most they will be holding uh, some stocks and uh, possibly mortgage-backed securities. But the very fact that you need uh, financial markets deep financial markets. And that's a characteristic of developed markets. What is India doing now? In the uh, piece that you wrote, you put out the year 2030, what is India doing right now that sort of 
building that base, setting the stage for potential role? So the two key aspects of what creates developed markets uh, are you have a lot of formal financial act economic activity. So right. most of the economic activity takes place in the formal sector. It mm. is taxed and it is above the table. Under the table, cash activity is relatively low in developed markets. It's opposite in India. 86% of the transactions are cash. Most of it is not recorded. So first thing the government has done is to for, try and formalize the economy. There are a number of steps they have taken. One of the things was the uh, demonetization yes. exercise, but yes. there's other stuff. There's also the GST, which is the um, uh, generalized sales tax. So right. what they have done is they've taken all a myriad of taxes at various levels. They've all collected them into mm. one single tax at the national level. But they are enforcing it through electronic payments and through input credit, which makes it for the person. So if some businesses are paying taxes right. uh, and they have to get input credit, they want their supplier, even if it's a small supplier, to be on the, um, on the network. Otherwise, mm. they're not going to get the input credit. And how, so is that going well? How has the, uh, in terms of what's seen in the data, in terms of the formalization of the economy, bringing the economy from cash into an electronic taxed market, is that working? Yeah, first of all, the tax buoyancy has gone up a lot, and the tax to GDP now is near record level. Um, so even though GDP is not necessarily growing that fast, so there is nice buoyancy in the tax uh, numbers. And the GST, that is the yeah. sales tax, is settling down. Um, the other things that post-demonetization, some trends you've seen are digital transactions are increasing dramatically, but more important, people are putting more money into mutual funds. There's uh, been a dramatic shift that life insurance products and things like that. Now, we think of taxes in the conventional sense as funding the government. The yeah. government needs to collect money so it can spend it. Right. Um, but a big point that you make is that taxes create demand for the currency. Yes. Explain that. So the old, um, this is a really old view. I think it goes back to the NAP. I think it's called the chartalist view, which is the currency demand is created by the need to pay taxes because right. the government demands that you pay the taxes in its currency. Um, but once, so if you have a large tax base, you have a potentially large demand for the currency. Right. Now, once you've created that, the currency can take a life of its own. Nobody would now say that the U.S. dollar demand is dependent on right. the tax base. I mean... But if, there were, if, there's, if we were in India and there was no, if we could avoid paying taxes, I could pay you in dollars, yeah. I could pay you in Bitcoin, I could pay you in gold, anything, the moment I'm compelled to pay, in rupee, or pay taxes in rupees, yes. we, I want to acquire some rupees. Yes, that's right. And then in terms of uh, uh, the sort of uh, expansion of the fiscal state, so right. that a key role in stabilizing the government, right. is that so, how, what is, how, how, how much can the government stabilize the economy So right here is most emerging market economies, the key characteristic, another key characteristic is they are very pro-cyclical. So mm -hmm. they have to actually right. tighten fiscal policy or tighten right. monetary policy or both during recessions, which is not what most developed countries do. And that's partly because they don't have a large tax base. So their government bond is not the safest asset even for their own citizens. So they so can't just spend more. So they can't spend more. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, tune in every week to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.